Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Catherine Van Zippel, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. Why seek the best practice when you can seek the next practice? At BWF, we collaborate with you to find those next practices at the intersection of different perspectives in fundraising and through innovation. Principal giving has adapted into an age of philanthropic investing, with organizations dedicating time to a campaign of one. BWF partners with organizations to identify and plan an opportunity for a top prospect to make a transformational gift. When it comes to ultra-high net worth fundraising, it's essential to adapt your processes and approaches to potential donors while remaining aligned to the strategic plan. Visit BWF.com to learn more about our services. The final episode of our impact and innovation season is extra long. It's for a couple of reasons. It could be because we have more than one guest. It also could be because I'm not ready to end these amazing conversations we've been having over the past eight weeks. The good news is we will have a webinar next week on March 29th at 11 a.m. Eastern to recap these episodes and dig even deeper. Please look at the show notes to see a registration link. So you may be wondering who our final conversation is with. I have the privilege of featuring several leaders within the New School Office of Development and Alumni Engagement. This episode grapples with some hard questions and focuses on three main themes, hiring diverse applicants, handling microaggressions on the front line, and growing and building affinity groups and cohort fundraising. Jonah Nye, Meg Kaufman, and Alex Tapnio are incredibly inspiring as they talk about their work advancing the new school with a diverse team and set of perspectives. So let's learn more about each of our guests. Meg joined the new school development and alumni engagement team in June 2015. She began her time at the new school overseeing fundraising for the new school for social research. Beginning in 2018, her role has expanded to include overseeing the university's plan giving and most recently principal giving programs. Previously, Meg worked at the New York City Regional Office of Northwestern University and Columbia University Medical Center. Alex Tapnio joined the New School Development and Alumni Engagement team in August of 2019. He oversees advancement communications and the annual fund and personally produces the events, volunteerism, and alumni mentorship programs. Previously, Alex worked in student and alumni engagement positions at Columbia University and the Cooper Union. Throughout his university work, Alex has advocated for resources and funding for students in the design and creative industries. Prior to higher education, he worked in corporate philanthropic initiatives, sponsoring nonprofits with investments in diverse talent and multicultural audiences while working at the Time Warner Foundation, Scholastic Art and Writing Awards, and the J.P. Morgan Chase Foundation. Our third guest is Jonah Nye. Jonah joined the new school in September of 2021 as Senior Vice President of Development and Engagement. In this role, Jonah leads the New School's strategic fundraising, institutional advancement, alumni engagement, corporate and foundation relations, and related areas. Jonah came to the New School from the Jewish Museum, where he served as the Director of Major Gifts, Senior Director of Individual Giving, Acting Deputy Director of Development, and then appointed Chief Development Officer. You may recognize Jonah from a previous episode. To learn more about his career and hear other perspectives from him, check out episode number 43. Now let's get started. 
Welcome to the debrief. We have Jonah, who some of you will recognize his voice and his photo and two of his colleagues from the new school. So let me have you introduce yourselves, starting with Jonah. Hi, everyone. This is Jonah Nye, the Senior Vice President of Development and Alumni Engagement at the new school. Hi, my name is Meg Kaufman. I'm the Assistant Vice President of Principal and Plan Giving here at the new school. And I'm Alex Tapnio. I'm the Assistant Vice President of Alumni Engagement and Annual Giving Programs. It is so much fun to have all three of you here. And I think it will be a, a more rich conversation having several members of the team with different perspectives. And you know, part of what really inspired this conversation was the incredible nature of the leadership team at the new school being primarily BIPOC and how unusual that is and how powerful that is. So Jonah, why don't we start with you sharing a little bit about that? Oh, sure. Well, full disclosure, I have only been on the job for about five months. So you've gotten me at the anything is possible, highly caffeinated <laughs> phase of my tenure. So with that really big caveat, I will say that um, I could not be prouder to be part of this leadership team. I think it's one of the most diverse presidential cabinets in the business. And to be part of a community that is showing, not just telling, <laughs> its commitment to equity, inclusion, and social justice is amazing. You know, you can say you value anything, but doing the work is a lot harder. So, you know, to paraphrase one of my colleagues, to be able to come to work as yourself unapologetically and fulsomely is a gift. And it's not just great for you personally, it attracts talent and attracts a lot of candidates. A lot of the people I've interviewed recently have noted the composition of the leadership team generally, or the president specifically, as one of their key motivators to wanting to come work here. Interesting. Well, maybe we should start with hiring then, because I know that's you've done a lot of, you know, hiring with equity and inclusion in mind. So let's start with how you're attracting diverse applicants with your openings on your team. Yeah, you know, I, I think that when you talk about attracting diverse help to your organization, people really make it out to be like this big enigma of like, who are these people and how can we find them? Um, and, you know, the answers have been pretty boring, you know, look for people, do the legwork, do the research go on LinkedIn, go into your professional networks, check out what people have been doing and reach out to them directly and say, would you be interested in applying for this position? I think that there's a lot to be said, like Jonah said, for walking your talk and showing that your own staff, your own leadership is truly diverse in attracting people as well. So it's kind of a little bit of both, just showing that you really mean it through your actions is the best way to find people. And especially right now in this strange time, talent is being recruited heavily mm -hmm. all over the place. So yeah. no matter who you're looking for, you better be ready to go out there and really make the pitch for why they should come work for you. Exactly. I mean, to Meg's point, it is a worker's market right now. And so the structures that are in place, the five same places that everybody lists their jobs, that's not working, right, to, to accomplish these goals. So you have to go to where the workers are. And that includes affinity groups. That includes online places like MPOC Unicorns or AADO or, you know, pick an affinity group. They exist now. 
but they are not at this table like maybe chronicle philanthropy listings are or something like that. You just, you have to go to where they are and they're there. And you're doing that? Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I also think there's, it's important too, to bring the right attitude to the conversation. You know, when you're looking for employees, you're also, I mean, these are your partners in the work. And Mm -hmm. so I sometimes think people fall into a trap of thinking because they're looking for a different or diverse group of people that somehow maybe they're doing them a favor by looking for them. And that's not the case. You're not doing anyone a favor. These are professionals and you know, you need to treat them with the same amount of like respect and interest that you do with everybody else. They're not there to fill a quotient for you. They're there to do the work. So, you know, I think that bringing that right attitude is very important. Well, I'm glad you said that because I think there is a level of intimidation or insecurity around white hiring managers going to these groups. And I think maybe it's not happening because people aren't sure how to do it. And I, you know, I'm saying that as a white person that we might, we want that, or I want that, but how do we do it? And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but just, you know, the language around opening that conversation is, is hard. I think it's owning up to it and saying, we've made a commitment to this. These are part of our stated values. We haven't lived up to them. So I just, and we could do a lot better. Would you be open to a conversation? Not unlike asking a donor for a gift conversation, asking for permission for the conversation. Mm -hmm. Would you have this conversation with me here? Full disclosure, we need to do better. And we, you know, we were really impressed by your track record in, in our research could we have that conversation with you? If you were, you know, if you were to be questioned about, well, why did you, why did you pick me, you know, mm-hmm. to talk to me? You can, you should be honest. Employees, prospective employees, they're looking at us. They're looking at our websites. They're looking at our alumni webpages, our events, even before they're applying. And so if you're a university or nonprofit and you're, you have genuine authentic values of wanting to support BIPOC employees, BIPOC alumni, They'll find you in, in some ways, some will. And at the new school, we've had several alumni events featuring BIPOC leaders speaking about uh, supporting Black youth. And it comes up in interviews saying, wow. I'm so glad to be uh, interviewing with you all because I saw that you all believe in your mission and you're practicing it. That's, that's great. As you said, from the very beginning of the conversation, it's living it, it's having the leadership. What are like small intentional movements that could be changed even down to like the job descriptions themselves that you all have tried that have been successful? Start right from the beginning, have a conversation about who you want to see attracted to this pool. What qualities are they going to have? What background, what experience? And then really examine what, a job description says, because that is the first thing you're telling prospective applicants is these are the things that we're valuing. So if you're valuing, say, somebody coming in with a proactive attitude and you want to make sure that they have a desire to learn on the job and, you know, it's an entry-level position, ask yourself, does that person really need a bachelor's with a preferred master's degree already? Or is this a great opportunity for somebody who might be switching industries 
or might just be starting out and, you know, they've got to start from where they've been, which is an associate's degree or no degree. It's just a certification. The point of the interview process is figuring out who's going to be the right fit. But to get that applicant pool, you really do have to start by looking at the description, looking at where you're posting it, like Jonah said, and thinking to yourself, what are the actual needs instead of what do I think this implies we need? That is a great point. And I would say that I've been incredibly impressed by Meg and Alex's work backing into a search at every level from associate and higher. Each one has a committee. Each one begins with a kickoff to the search before the job description is done and really weighting the different components of the values and what's important, right? So how how much are we going to weight years of experience relative to maybe their demonstrated commitment to equity and inclusion. For this role, do we need really 10 years experience or is it more important if da, 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 da. So like every role is dissected like that and really weighted and intentional. And I think that that is, it takes longer, but it again, it is doing the work. It's not just slapping up a job description and hoping for the best. We have hiring committees for our uh, review. And we make sure that there's diverse representation across the hiring committees. And we ask thoughtful questions, um, not just uh, the hard working skills, but also the relationship building that these applicants have for communities. And every job description says that we strongly are committed to diversity inclusion in the workplace from applicants of members of underrepresented groups, but also those who share in that commitment. Hiring committees take more time and it's more work, but it pays off because you end up really having the right people in the role. And I love, Jonah, what you were saying about, and Meg, about these years of experience and these specific things that we've always done and taking a second look at those. And it makes me think about applicable skills from other fields. And Alex, I know that you have a corporate background. What do you think was really great foundational experience for you that brought you into development? Catherine, that's a great question. I myself didn't start out in nonprofits and higher ed. Prior to my work in universities, I was at corporations for, for 15 years. So it was really like a first career for me and, and alumni relations and development's my second. I was specifically working in corporate social responsibility and diversity inclusion. And so I was already in an area where diversity inclusion was top of mind, that my job was to work with a team uh, of diverse employees because we practice what we preached and uh, really show the values of the corporations to show that investments can be made, investments of time, uh, of volunteer people, of events, celebrating communities, and, and really affecting all areas of community. For me, I've taken so many of those values uh, in hiring at university. You have to consider the journey of getting to that application. You know, due to our backgrounds, race, gender, bias, systemic Oppression, BIPOC people don't always find the opportunities or it can be difficult to find these opportunities. Yes, you want to look out for the hard skills, you know, project management, financial analysis, but I think we in the nonprofit space, we're looking for passion and dependability Mm -hmm. and empathy. I I just want to really convey that transferring over from corporate to, to nonprofit that we can succeed. Not everyone grows up to be alumni engagement officer. I think you should really look out for those stories, right? Look out for those stories that people are passionate about volunteering, about being part of the community. Totally agree. 
Great segue, because I want to talk a little bit about community now and peer groups, both internally on your team in your office, but also externally with alumni relations and the communities that we have with primarily schools, but also nonprofits and institutions where we have volunteers. So I'm just going to dive right in and ask the three of you about microaggressions in the workplace. How has your reaction to these kinds of things changed over the last couple of years and how do you manage it? Oh my God, Catherine, I have so many opinions about this. So first of all, <laughs> no, but the word microaggression has always irked me. You know that saying, a ton of feathers is still a ton. Okay, <laughs> so I made a point there. I, I'm, I am certainly not an expert on this. I can only speak for myself, but everyone has their own lived experience of maneuvering, of constricting or code switching, whatever, you know, to make other people comfortable. If you're, if you're a frontliner in, in any part of the development and alumni engagement umbrella. I think the first stop is an open and frank conversation with your manager about this eventuality, because if you are BIPOC, if you are queer, if you're neurodiverse, if you have a physical disability, it is going to happen just by virtue of the fact that you're meeting so many people so quickly in homes, at parties, and so in, in events that look social, but we know our work. So it's having those really frank conversations like, look, this person's trying to only meet me at a bar at night or this person says racist things, talk to your manager. If it means ending a donor relationship, if it means changing gift officers, it depends on the situation, right? I know for myself, after being on this planet for 42 years, what my line is and when it's crossed, and I will excuse myself. I can simply say, I need to excuse myself from this meeting. There's diffusing tactics like, oh, what makes you say that? Or redirecting the conversation or non-committal replies or things like that. Those can work as well. And so you need the training on that. But I know that my self-worth and dignity is more important than any gift. And to back to what I said earlier is when you work for a place, you know, that doesn't run from these kinds of values, it's a really powerful feeling. And it's you're less loaded going into it if you think you're going to be in a comfortable situation because you have the power within you to leave to leave a meeting if you have to. You should talk to your manager. And also as a manager, you should talk to your employees. And Jonah's done a great job of that. It's one of the first things we talked about when he got on the job, literally was- Leave all your meetings. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about your comfort levels. Tell me about things that have happened to you on the job and how they were handled. And if you thought they could have been handled better or differently, you know, part of our work and part of all developments work mm-hmm. is when we bring people on, it is our job then to make sure that we have these conversations. If they came from the corporate world, if they just, this is their first job out of school, whatever their previous roles were, it is your job now bringing them on to be really open and to make sure they understand that that line of communication is there and they can trust their own instincts particularly with younger employees, I've noticed that it's, they, they, they don't know yet. Is this okay? Didn't feel right. Didn't feel comfortable, but maybe this is just what we do here. And so letting them come to you with that open door policy and say, tell me what happened and how you want to handle it. I think it's critical for retaining your employees then and letting them grow. I completely agree. And again, what I'm thinking is from my perspective, which is what we all do, right? We think of where we come from and I'm thinking, how would I 
wouldn't it be assumptive to say what Jonah said? Like Jonah can say it to you because you're in a similar experience, lived experience. Could I say, what are your levels of comfort? I mean, I don't know. Well, Catherine, I mean, as a woman, we get this all the time as well, you know? And even if you are a cisgender, straight, white male, something has happened in your past that has made you uncomfortable. It's just kind of the nature of life. (laughs) So, so, you know, I do think that we can all come from a place of, like you're saying, what was our own experiences? What are experiences we've heard from colleagues, peers, other employees, um, and bring that to the table then when we're talking to our employees and just say, you know, people have a lot of wild experiences in this industry. Please feel free to come to me and let me know if you're ever feeling uncomfortable. Yes. And I think as a manager of some of people who frontline, it is incumbent upon you to understand the situations that they might be walking into. So if let's say, I mean, I, the one I said about bars earlier, that is a, mm-hmm. a real case I had where I knew that this officer, because of the cohort of donors that she had, were typically meetings at bars. They were after work. They were very social. Alcohol was generally present. So I need, you know, I have to go in and say like, here's some ways to create a space around you and an exit strategy should you need it. Having a buddy, especially at events, like if you see this, having someone from across the room bail you out if you need to. I mean, there's all that kind of choreography that as a manager, it is your job to sort of try to anticipate some of it, even though obviously things happen in the moment. Anything you want to add, Alex? Well, you know, I was going to say, if it's a couple of staff members you're talking to a donor and something is misconstrued or they shouldn't have said something, stand up for your other person stand up, like if someone calls you sweetie or something, whatever, whatever microaggression, be like, you know, hey, let's take a moment or, or, or stand back. Um, it's, it's perfectly reasonable. I've had that moment before where something happened and I didn't say anything and I immediately regretted that I didn't. I think it takes practice to react in the moment too. You can always say yeah. something afterwards, but it's not as powerful afterwards. It, yeah, exactly. I mean, you, look, we go out, what, a hundred times a year, whatever the metric is that the powers that be that hand us some of them you're just sometimes you just don't have the energy yeah to do it and other and you're like I'm going to diffuse this one just this way but you know having a bag of tricks is necessary the tools for the road yeah well let's talk about affinity groups I know there's been a lot of conversation about how we utilize grow and engage affinity groups for your team, how important do you, how do you prioritize creating relatable spaces for your community? Catherine, it's, it's really important. And I'm sure my colleagues would agree. Um, you know, we're just beginning this work in this area for the alumni body and what we call our alumni communities program. Universities call them different things, groups, chapters. We call them communities really specifically to echo the sense of coming together, uh, embracing each other, to learn from each other, to network uh, in a shared space. Our specific community groups program consists of career communities, career, <laughs> uh, fashion design, writers, public sector, um, global communities like LA, San Francisco, Hong Kong, Paris, and our inclusive communities, LGBTQ+, Parsons Black Alumni, Latinx, AAPI, uh, and Women's Alumni Leadership. We want to build a safe space and also an empowered space where, where people can speak the truth uh, about equity, inclusion, and social justice. Uh, you know, the new school is filled with 
schools, initiatives, institutes, and centers that are, are specifically for social justice and teaching these, these, these students who will become alumni to really become activated in the community. And we wanna provide those community spaces for them to connect with each other and to help each other with their projects and to be supportive of each other. And you said they're new, just how new? Is it a couple of years or a decade or a couple of months? <laughs> really a, about a year. I mean, I, I would say that our, our predecessors have tried. It's not the first time, but you know, President McBride uh, wants us to be a, a leader here. And so we're making strong efforts. Um, we have several thousand alumni who signed up to be parts of these groups, just hundreds per each pocket of each, wow. each affinity group. And we're excited to get ready and activate and to give them some opportunities to, to meet and network. The, you know, the actor slash comedian slash singer, multi-hyphenate artist, Aaliyah Delaria, who I think is hilarious. She was on a podcast recently talking about why she likes going to this bar, not that bar. And she said, you know, sometimes you just have to be in a space that you can let your shoulders relax. And that's what I think about a lot of these affinity groups and for fundraisers too, right? Not just for alums, it's really helpful to have a group of friends that you can go to. And if it doesn't exist, just start it yourself. You call a couple and people. And you've done that, right? Yeah, it attracts others, you know, and yeah. they're really helpful and they talk about how to navigate certain things. And, and if you really can't stand the idea of it, sometimes it leads to jobs too. <laughs> that happened at one of the ones that I created. So like they're useful spaces <laughs> for many reasons, like your shoulders relax or like network like crazy, but they're important. Catherine, being new, I just want to say, too, we wouldn't be living up to our values if we weren't continually trying to evolve and right. to add these avenues and spaces, because maybe we're not the forefront here, but there are universities that have had these for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, but we really want to do this through the new school lens because of our, our focus on social justice. We want to do it right. And I love that because it really fits into our conversations that we're having on this season about innovation the evolution, the trying new, the idea of launching these sounds very intimidating, but you're smiling as you're telling me about them. Let's move into talking about donor work. Meg, I know that you are on the front lines and have been doing incredible things on behalf of the new school. How are you embracing cohort fundraising? Cohort fundraising like affinity groups is not a brand new concept, but the thing about it that we've really embraced is the intentionality of bringing it to our gift conversations with donors. Donors are always looking for impact, right? It's the one thing they're really craving when you have these conversations is what is my impact? And the idea that they could start a process of making real change by bringing on several students at once from an underrepresented group instead of just one at a time has really resonated with people, particularly when you explain to them the idea of if you really want to move a needle, you have to make a definitive move. You can't just bring one person on at a time or before you know it, it's 30 years down the line and you still only have one person in said department, said area said program and not only that but from the student perspective having a group having a built-in community is so important for their experience it makes them a happier alum it makes them a happier professional it also then attracts more students same way that your leadership being diverse will attract more diversity so it's really 
a win-win scenario to do cohort fundraising because the donor gets the extra impact and then the actual programs get the change that they're craving in a very real fast way. So how are the mechanics of the gift different? I mean, I know the traditional, you give a scholarship and you fully fund one student, but does cohort fundraising mean current use? Is it still endowed? How does that look? Well, that's the conversation to have. Listen, Jonah and I are major gift fundraisers. We love the idea of for a few dollars more, you can have such a bigger impact. <laughs> so <laughs> it does open the door to have that solicitation conversation about just how big can we dream here. But this is also where it's critical to have internal partners as well, your deans, your provosts, your presidents. So you can have this conversation with them about where is this really needed and how can we make a push as a group so the donor is aware that this is a priority for us all the way to the very top. Do you have any examples you can share of recent gifts that have you know, enabled you to think bigger? I know I'm putting you on the spot. Well, <laughs> yes, we do have a gift that has come through. This is at the graduate student level that its entire purpose is the idea of bringing in cohorts. So there's essentially always at least three people at a time that are in a program. That came to us by a longtime donor and community member who just decided on her own that this is something that was really important to her. In many ways, starting with those closest partners is probably going to be the most useful because they're the most bought into what you're trying to do as an organization, which was a great gift. But we, we are going to use this now as a way to essentially market and get out the word that this is something that we're doing. So we hopefully attract more interest in it from other donors as well. Again, yeah. as soon as it exists people start flooding in. So that is our hope. And uh, we'll check back with you when yes. we manage to grow the program. Good. And, and you talked about academic partners and I, I totally agree. Having them in the conversation, having the leadership in the conversation is, it just amplifies any conversation. But I also know there can be certain faculty members or leaders that are very good at this that get called on again and again and again. Have you seen that? And how do you respect those partners to ensure that their time is being used wisely? That absolutely happens. And it is a double-edged sword when it comes to having really remarkable faculty, but particularly faculty that come from an underrepresented group. I'm thinking in particular BIPOC faculty have been asked to do a lot lately. And it's important for us to remember that we have to respect their time as well and their expertise and their need to not be overloaded because of who they identify as. You know, it's it's funny. The visibility is great, but it does then lend itself to a lot of, frankly, uncompensated work. Um, and we just have to be very careful about that when conversations are about pay gaps and things of that nature. And then we're all of a sudden also asking you to do uncompensated work as a faculty member that just doesn't, it doesn't jive. So you, you have to really have conversations with them, respect their time. And also use that as an opportunity when you're talking to donors to say, I have an amazing person I want 
to speak with and I want you to meet, but as you, I'm sure, understand, we need to be thoughtful of their time. And once we've had more of a conversation about what you want to do, I would be thrilled to present you and the idea to them when the time comes. I think that maneuver is really excellent, you know, Meg, be letting the prospect know that, like, should we end up sitting down with this researcher, author, whatever, the conversation has to really have gotten to a tipping point. I'm not saying you have to necessarily have made a commitment, but that's the level of seriousness. Like, and they're like almost to the gift agreement at that point or close yes. to it. Yes. yes. Yeah. Everybody loves getting in a room with an expert. It's one of the, one of the things that donors want that we can actually give to them. So it's, it's one of our few pieces of leverage during these conversations then is if you want to get to the expert, we need to have a little bit more of a conversation about what you want to do first. Is there anything else on the hiring or the peer groups or the donor work that we missed that you want to be sure that our listeners know? Uh, in terms of peer groups, I do think sometimes you just sometimes unfortunately have to roll up your sleeves and do it yourself. You know, I remember distinctly being at some fun fundraiser cattle call. I don't even remember where it was. There were like a hundred of us and there were three Asian people. I was speaking to one of them and I said, oh, well, you know, in half a generation, it's going to be better. And then, I mean, almost to the date, 11 years later, I was in a Zoom cattle call with fundraisers. There were 80 or 84 of us or something. And there were three Asians and I knew them both. And I said, well, <laughs> we're the leaders now. So I guess it's our turn to try to take a, a whack at this problem. And so sometimes it is just having to do it and really owning that space. You know, I spoke to a really great colleague because, you know, at a certain point in your career, you get asked to be on the panels and especially on certain topics, if you're queer, if you're BIPOC, and I was being crabby about it. And I was like, do I have to do all the panels now? Do I have to be that person? And they said to me, Jonah, what are you proving by saying no? Get in that space, own it, be a path maker, not a gatekeeper. And so they gave me some tough love, kicked me in the pants and got me to do it. And sometimes I think that just, that's some of the work. When you're in leadership, you got to take a try. Well, let's wrap up with our signature questions. We've talked vaguely about the concept of innovation, but let's get granular. Innovation is fill in the blank. More often than not, innovation can be sourced and surfaced from insiders who've been really trained at what they do, and they just haven't had a seat at the table. So to what we've all talked about is it's a person of color, it's a woman, it's a person with a disability. Because to be truly innovative, you do need to know somehow how the machine works, to know what needs fixing and where there's opportunities to grow. You know, I would say too, but we need to provide the resources, uh, make the effort to invest in those new employees because you've identified a BIPOC uh, candidate, you've hired them, and then you, you can't just set us into the fire and cross your fingers at, well, we, we made the right hire. Um, mm -hmm. You need to provide the training and resources necessary to see it through. And then you'll, you'll get long-term commitment and loyalty and uh, an employee for life hopefully, or for a few years anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a, I use a musical example because, you know, that's my background. So there's this new opera uh, out right now called Intimate Apparel. It's at Lincoln Center Theater. It's really great. And the cast is almost exclusively Black. And these singers have been around 
a while. It's just, they've never had this kind of spotlight in this vehicle. Hmm. And it is a revelation of a work of art. These are not overnight successes. (laughs) They've done the work. They just have not had that pathway before and now they're getting it and everyone can see the stars that they are right that this is not making them a star they were stars and they were innovators they just didn't have the space and what's some advice about innovation that we should know all three of you have done things outside of the box and new and put yourself out there what should we know and how should we be warned as we try to be as brave as you Innovation doesn't always have to be huge. It can be very small and it should start very fairly small. A big part of it is just assessing where you are and deciding these are the steps we're taking. It's not good enough anymore to have the right intentions. You have to act. Um, and if you aren't going to act, then I, it doesn't really matter what you're thinking. If you're in a position where you're hiring you're doing the work with donors, you're doing the work with alumni, you're doing the work with any community, you have to really think about how are my actions going to change in order to further this. I wonder if this gets to the heart of what you're saying too. Um, Innovation, maybe this is more traditional, but it's amplifying each other's voices, finding other BIPOC people, Um, when I go to virtual volunteering or I'm in a network meeting, I, I find extraordinary people that I think you should work at the new school. I point them out to our career site and I, I just want to be supportive of, of my, my fellow community, regardless of who you are. You can be supportive of BIPOC and other people. So you've all hit on this a little bit, but I'll still ask the iconic signature question. What do you know for sure? I think this is what I said last time, but I can't remember. because still I true, Jonah, I even in a new job? I only know one thing for sure. Everything else is a mystery to me. Um, No, but when I think about philanthropy and fundraising, it's a people to people exercise. It is not a spreadsheet. It is not a balance sheet exercise. It's people to people. So yes, we use data. Yes, we use analysis. But at the heart of it is about people relating to others. And that is why a lot of what we talked about today is so important. You know, I, I think the thing that I know for sure when it comes to innovation or equity and inclusion, or just whatever your work is, is it's never done. That's the whole idea. You're striving for progress. Progress is always two feet in front of you. So you're not going to be done. You're just moving forward. It's coming to our work with that in mind helps us pace ourselves, helps us stay activated and engaged. And you know, helps us understand that as long as we're making steps, we're doing the work. So love it. For me, what do we know for sure? Uncertainty is, is certain, <laughs> you know, pandemic, when's it going to end? We keep pushing it off. We keep pushing it off. I, I just want to say we need to remain flexible, mindful, purposeful, and thoughtful. Uh, and, and I'll say lastly, respectful respectfully each other, of our communities, of these students, of alumni. And I I think that'll get you through the day. Thank you so much for coming on and for sharing all of this. Thank you for having us. I think my biggest takeaway from this conversation was Meg's line. It's not good enough anymore to have the right intentions. You have to act. 
We got some really great advice on how to continue hiring diverse applicants, how to look outside of the box for our candidates, and we got some great ideas about cohort fundraising. Alex said, it's important to consider the journey it takes for some BIPOC applicants to even show up in your inbox. This will also stick with me. I hope to see you next week at the webinar and hope that in the meantime, you'll connect on social media and continue the conversation. You can find us on LinkedIn at The Development Debrief and on Instagram at Dev Debrief. Thank you to BWF for being our amazing sponsor and for inspiring this special season.